And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 6. So we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we're in Matthew 16 through 20, and we're doing a series called The House That Jesus Builds. And we're in a season and stage where we're building our church, and what we want to do is follow the blueprint that Jesus lays out in Matthew 16 through 20. He lays out a blueprint for how he's going to build his house. And we've been looking the last several weeks that the house is built on a foundation, and that foundation has two main parts. It has a confession that Jesus is the Christ, and then it has a commitment to follow him. And we've been looking at that confession, and what I want to do is use Acts 6, 1 through 7, to try and illustrate and synthesize the, the things we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So to set this up, what we're going to do, I want you to imagine the crisis in the boardroom. So I'm going to sketch a scenario, and what I'm going to need for you to do is kind of fill in with your own imagination imagination, a lot of the details and the situation. So I want you to imagine uh, we're in a boardroom. So you're coming into this boardroom. It's midnight. I think it's a little after midnight. There's a couple different characters. There's a crisis coming, and we have this fictitious, we'll say it's a fictitious, you know, multi-million dollar uh, company. So our all right, so here's our boardroom members. Now, if you happen to be like visiting and you're on the special council to one of the three richest people in the world, this is all a completely fictitious made up story. And so you come in this board and let's just imagine uh, the CEO is a guy named Tim. And uh, Tim is a mild mannered man who has this remarkable ability to kind of synthesize things and bring people together. And let's just imagine that Tim was college buddies with Jim. Jeff here, and Jeff is, they started the company, Jeff is the no-nonsense type A leader who's really been the one who's propelled this company like out of the garage and into the stratosphere. And Jeff just, like, he talks and, like, he's just a Rolodex of, like, of cliches and, uh, you know, things like, um... If you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. Fortune favors the brave. Uh, move fast, break things. It's just this Rolodex of cliches coming, constantly moving. His basic default is move, go forward, act. And then eventually they had to bring on Terrence. And Terrence here, Jeff dismissively calls Terrence the numbers guy. But he's no ordinary numbers guy. He has this amazing ability to uh, look at kind of core fundamental principles. And he kind of believes his, his core job at the company is to help keep Jeff connected to this thing called reality. And then eventually they brought Sarah on, and Sarah has this unique ability to address uh, certain problems that the two men were completely unaware of. And she can see things from a uniquely you know, feminine perspective, and really empathy is her superpower. People say that when they're in the room with her, they feel like they're the only ones there. And Tim has gotten word that tomorrow in the, in the Times, there's going to be this explosive expose that's going to reveal some very questionable, unethical sourcing practices. And then they've also got word that is coordinated with a, what Jeff believes is a carefully coordinated social media conspiracy 
that's going to accuse several of their senior management and high-level employees of things like racism and other things that could uh, potentially you know, explode the company. So for the last two days, they've been fueled by caffeine and other unhealthy things, and they're here in the middle of the night in the boardroom trying to determine what do we do? How do we handle and manage this crisis? So just kind of imagine what type of conversation would play out. You know, maybe Tim would start and he would ask Terrence, all right, Terrence, what are we dealing with? What's the actual situation? And then Jeff, of course, knew that he was going to start with Terrence and he'd been ready and he's upset. And he in instantly doesn't wait to hear what he says and interjects and say, hey, look, as leaders, we set the pace. You create the standards. If we wait on what Terrence has to say, the pace is going to be too slow. Our stock, our stock evaluation could could tank by the morning. We have to act. We have to get out in front of this thing. We don't have time for debate. We don't have time for risk assessment or a thorough examination of our options. We have to act. We got to move fast and... And of course, before he can even finish the sentence, Sarah jumps in and says, whoa, 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 yeah, yeah, we, we, we know. Can we not speak in cliches for one minute, move fast and break things? Yeah, that's why I'm here. Because the whole time this company's been going, it's been moving fast and you've been breaking things and some of those things you break are just digital code. There's these things we call human beings and they've been run over by your freight train. And so what we need to do is we need to take a moment and we need to find the victims and we need to hear their story and we need to walk through to help them process their pain. And of course, Jeff doesn't have any time for that. He said, oh, what do you want to do? Let's get the Kleenexes and chamomile tea and let's have a big cry session. You think we got time for that? And then of course, Terrence jumps in and says, Jeff keeps saying, we have to get ahead of this thing. We have to get ahead of it. And Terrence says, you keep saying this thing, this thing. We don't even know what this thing is. What is this thing we're dealing with? You can't solve a problem if you don't know what the problem is. Were real policies and procedures broken? Was that video that's leaking? Is that even our people? Who are the victims? Are they actual victims? Are they the perpetrators? How can we solve a problem before we know what it is? And round and round they go. One saying, we need decisive action. We got to act. Others saying, no, no, no. What we need is data. We need truth. We have to figure out what actually happened. Now they say, no, what we need is empathy and connection, and we need to have a conversation. So as they go around, who do you find yourself siding with? Who would you say, yeah, that's right. That's, who, that's what we need to do. That's how we mitigate and manage this crisis. Whose team are you on? Now, as you think about that, let's imagine Tim decides, all right, let's take a break. And while they take a break for a few minutes, we're going to spend some time looking at a, another moment of crisis, another controversy, another group of individuals. And let's say, all right, how did they solve their crisis? And as we do, what we're trying to do is we're trying to synthesize what type of things does Jesus put in place to, for his house to function? What type of positions, what type of people are needed around the table? So let's look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. And they set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so let's imagine we're pulling back here in Acts chapter 6. We have another, this scenario of possible dissension. And up until this point, Peter has been the central focus, and he represents the preaching and the teaching ministry. And then in Acts, starting in about chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, we have this whole series of ways that Satan is going to attack the church. And his primary goal is to shut them up to silence them, to get them to quit proclaiming this word, this gospel, this announcement of the kingdom coming. And the way he does it, he tries a couple different strategies. His one strategy is persecution. He tries to beat them up, put them in jail to bully them. Then he tries corruption in Acts chapter 5, tries to get them corrupt. And then here, depending on how you want to phrase this, he either tries internal dissension or distraction Get them focused on something that's maybe not as central, lose the sense of priorities, or internal dissension. And these are the three kind of major threats that come from the very beginning as Jesus builds his house on the earth. And his first step is to establish the, the doctrine, to get the teaching right, where they come together and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayers and to fellowship. They devote themselves to a certain community life that's built on this foundation. But here in Acts chapter 6, we see that second step being put in place as he's going to put in the parameters for the context for their community care and how they're to care for one another. So what you notice is that the growth of the church and the increasing numbers of impoverished believers has required them to restructure how they organize themselves, restructure their community. And so what the 12 do here is they establish a new group of leaders with distinct and direct responsibilities. So eager to preserve the unity and preserve the priorities. So let's kind of walk through this passage. And as we walk through it, a couple of things I want you to notice. Just kind of notice verse 1, verse 7. It begins the growth of the church. Now in these days, the disciples are increasing in number. And then it ends. They're still increasing in number and the word is increasing. And then in verse 1, it unpacks, all right, here's the problem that they're facing. And then we see how they faced it. Called a meeting, offered a solution, accepted the proposal, and then the continued growth. So what we want to do is this morning, we're just kind of going to walk through these steps. And here's kind of first century biblical crisis management, kind of crisis or conflict management 101. And I think what we're going to learn is a lot of kind of core principles for how Christ expects his household to operate so first, the problem they faced. Let's look at the problem. Notice in verse 1, now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number. So this is one of the a problem of health, a problem of growth. Things are growing. And then notice a complaint came. When they were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews 
because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So a complaint rises, or you could translate that word, a murmuring. You know, we've seen this in Abraham, when Abraham and Lot both were prosperous and, prosperous and growing, a complaint, a murmur rose up. Uh, you see the Israelites, same word in the wilderness, when they were passing through the wilderness in Numbers 11, they began to murmur. And notice who is between. It's between Hellenist Jews and the Hebrews. Now, they are of the same, in essence, uh, you know, one of the challenges we have to do is, all right, we, how can we get ourselves into emotionally the energy that would have been in the room and the sense of frustration and the sense of um, violation? So how can we kind of feel that? So you got Hellenist, you got Hebrews, all right? So they're both Jewish, they're both Jews, but one's Hellenist, they speak Greek, the others are Hebrews, their primary language is, is Hebrew. So you have multiple synagogues all throughout the city, some would be exclusively Greek speaking, uh, some would be primarily Hebrew speaking, and kind of a way to get a sense of what's going on here. You can almost think like the, the Hebrews would have looked at the Hellenist as, as liberal, they're the worldly ones. They're the ones who are kind of capitulating to the way this, this world is. You know, you would, the, the Hellenists, you know, speak Greek. Like, that's, that's the language of the marketplace. That's the language of entertainment. That's, in essence, the language at, at school. That's the language of the world. So they, they're kind of going with the world. They would look at them as liberal. They, the Hellenists, would look at the Hebrews as conservative. They're so old-fashioned. They're not with the times. They're, not, they're trying to hold on to really a dead language. Um, another way you kind of think about it is some of the tension uh, you can have. Maybe uh, you can see it in uh, first-generation Spanish speakers and then their, their children who speak Spanish and English. You know, maybe one way to kind of imagine what the tension would have been like um, Think about this school. So this school, LPE, uh, when Cynthia was on the on the PTA here, the demographics a couple years ago, it might have, it's, maybe it's shifted some, but the demographics in, in the school were 38% Hispanic, 32% white, 10% Asian, and then the other 20% is just kind of a, a collection, an assortment. So could you imagine what it would be like, the energy, if it was decided, all right, we're actually going to separate those two. We're going to have two schools. One's a Spanish-speaking school. One's an English-speaking school. And then the energy, if one school felt like they were being neglected, like the resources were being funneled there and not here. This type of energy we have. We have some Hellenist widows. We have Hebrew widows. And they feel like, look, we're being neglected. We're not receiving uh, what we need. Now, notice the problem is not a deliberate sin like in Acts 5. And then the problem is not a theological issue like in Acts 15. The problem really is one of unintentional oversight. It's one of what you might call, you know, people are falling through the cracks. So they set up the problem, but as the apostles go through it, one of their needs, or one of the key needs is that they have to preserve their priorities. Notice how the apostles state the problem in verse 1 and 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, there's a play on that word neglect. Notice the accusation to the apostles as they're neglecting these widows. And there's kind of a play on the word with neglect. And their response, you could translate, It would be wrong of us to neglect the word. 
So it's an interesting dynamic. They're being accused of neglecting the widows, and they say, actually, what you're asking us to do is to neglect our core priorities of the word. So the problem is not, in one sense, the problem is not neglect. So here's kind of the, the reality. You're going to neglect something. So every yes you say is a no to other things. Something is going to be neglected. The only question is who gets determined what gets neglected? Who determines the priorities? And what they say is actually the, the problem of neglecting the widows can't be solved by us neglecting the word. So how do we, how do we solve this? Notice what they do, the first thing they do. Uh, the next thing they do is they call the meeting there in verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the first thing they do is they, they summon, they bring people together. And you know, one of the most, we can just kind of pause here and just think about one of the most transformative things that leadership can do is it's convening power that it can bring people together. This is what, how you have transformative leadership in a community context. You know, in a context of community, what they do is they initiate the gathering, and then notice they define the problem, and then they set some parameters, and then they unleash the people. So in a communal context, in any organization that's kind of community-oriented, this is how leadership has to work. They call people together, they define the problem, set some parameters, then let people go. They have to, people have to take ownership of their own problem and ownership of their own future. You know, this is kind of very different from kind of the conventional way we think about leadership like in corporations. Like in corporations, just the way leadership works is what they do is they, they set the vision, they enroll others to come alongside the vision, then they hold people accountable with measurable metrics and rewards to that vision. That's not really how things work here. That's not the dynamic. You know, what they do, they initiate the gathering, they get the right people in the room, they define the problem, give a few parameters for how they can solve it, and then let people go. It's their responsibility to take ownership of this problem. That's how communal organizations have to work. That's how communities have to work. Any, relation, any organization that's like volunteer-run or community-based, now, I wanna, I wanna take a moment, and for the next couple minutes, I just want to give an, uh, not an apology, that's not the right word, give an apologetic, give a defense, a sympathetic word for our public officials. So this might be the only three minutes of positive sentiment towards our public officials that you hear uh, this month, but I feel sorry for them. And when I'm thinking about our public officials, I'm thinking primarily not so much of national kind of public officials, but the ones kind of on the ground in the communities that we live who actually are affecting the quality of our life day to day. Because in many ways, I think we have set them up like for an impossibility, for failure. And I feel sorry for anyone who's kind of in charge of like a communal organization, whether it's like a school or, or anything, because we've distorted our conception of what public officials do. We've distorted their role into service providers. So we're the taxpayers, they're the suppliers, we're the consumers, we're not citizens. We want them to solve the issues for us that we should solve ourselves. 
You know, we have this kind of consumer model that it's their job to satisfy our consumer demands. But that's just not how community leadership works. That's not how healthy, thriving com uh, communities work. The most useful thing they can do is bring people together and to give them basic structures for how they solve their own problems. Do you know that the majority of the complaints that mayors get in any community are complaints that have to do with the breakdown of relationships? are things we don't need a public official to solve. You know, I think the things we like look to, for them to do. So it's like, all right, you know, I don't wanna work, but I need you to provide it for me. This came, I saw this uh, several years ago, we were watching the BBC and there was, uh, it just became just stark because we were watching the BBC news. I can, sometimes I go through cycles when I just can't handle our, our news. So we either just don't watch it or watch it from other places in the world. And we were watching the BBC, and over uh, Denmark and Iceland and the northern European countries, there was a giant volcanic explosion, and there was volcanic ash covering the atmosphere. And they had to cancel flights because of the volcanic ash. And they were interviewing people about what they thought needed to be done. And do you know how many people said, what are our, what are our politicians doing? Why are they not solving this problem? I was thinking, like, I know you think they might be filled with hot air, but what do you expect them to do? All hold hands and blow the volcanic ash away? Like, they can't solve that problem. You're going to have to find out another way to deal with it. We look to them to solve problems they can't solve. And you can see this on a local level. Like, every one of you who are part of a, in a neighborhood with an HOA and has your own neighborhood Facebook page, you know not to go on that because it's a cesspool of complaints and grumblings. And you know, like if you go on this afternoon, you will see somebody taking a picture of a ruffles bag that's laying in their yard and they're complaining, what is going on? What is the HOA doing about all of this litter? And you'll say, put the phone down and pick up the trash. <laughs> like you can solve this problem. We don't need to hire a litter, litter litigation firm to deal with this. You can solve this problem. And that's exactly what the apostles do. They are bringing the people together. So, all right, we have a problem. How are we going to solve it? And it creates communal ownership. And I'm so fascinated by, all right, so off the soapbox. The whole point is we come to the world like critics and consumers, and that's not how healthy communities grow and thrive. Next point, look at verse two. I'm so intrigued by this, is notice how they frame the problem. Look what the apostles say. Now, this is really fascinating to me because I know if I was in their position, I wouldn't frame it this way. Notice what they say. It is not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I think what I would have said is something like, you know, you know, we have dropped the ball. I am so sorry. Like, give us a little break. It's been a tumultuous couple years. We're living at the dawn of this thing called the new age and so we're still trying to navigate and figure it out. But here, you're right. Here, here's our five-step plan for faithful stewardship. Here's our policy for equitable distribution. Here's our Equality Act. This is what we're going to do. You know, so they don't do any of that. They say, it's not right. You're actually, it's not right for us to do this. Here's how we're going to solve it. So look at the proposal they make. Verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and whom we will appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So their, their proposal has a couple parts. You select seven men. They have to have specific qualifications. Then they're the ones who are going to solve this problem. And you kind of unpack this. There's some interesting things. You think, all right, well, seven? Is there something unique about seven? You know, seven's number of creation, new creation. Is there something symbolic there? Josephus said that most Jewish cities had a court with seven uh, judges, or are they the new judges? Is seven just a pragmatic number so you always have a majority? Why seven? Why specifically? It says specifically they need to be men. So why, why that? But notice also they don't impose the solution. But they invite the congregation to be active in solving their own problem. They set some parameters. These people have to be a good reputation. It means well spoken of. Have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom. And then you have to let them figure it out. So you can't really write up a policy for how we're going to deal with this problem. We have to trust the people we put in place are wise and full of the Spirit. You know, that's a challenge. You know, if you work in an organization, you know how frustrating it can be when kind of relational problems are solved by like a universal policy. So like you have Jim who always brings his lunch and leaves it in the, in the, in the, in the communal refrigerator and it's always smelly and it's always gross. And then instead of just talking to Jim about his lunchbox, they make a policy that no more lunchboxes in the refrigerator. It's like, well, that's frustrating. And so they don't make this public. They say, you know, we're going to actually depend on people who are wise and are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the challenges just in church life. You know, we're dependent on that. You know, when we started six years ago um, and we were going, you know, going around meeting with people, trying to kind of raise our core group, new people coming, wanting to find out, all right, tell us about this church. Um, tell us kind of about who you are, what's some different things uh, about six months to maybe a year before that, uh, at one of the, the largest churches in the area, uh, the pastor had found that church had been caught in some moral sin and had committed suicide. And you know, the question I was asked more than any other question for the first two years of this, like us trying to build this church, the question I was asked more than any other is what are you going to put in place so that doesn't happen? And one of the sad responses is there's, in one sense, there's nothing. Like there's not a policy you can put in place so moral failures don't happen. There's tremendous wisdom that we're committed to, like a plurality of leadership and shared uh, responsibilities and accountability and openness. But ultimately, we're dependent that you have people that are filled with the Holy Spirit and are wise and then make the best choice they can in the moment. And that's what they do, choose these people. And then notice the reasons they give in verse 4. This is so we can maintain our priorities. I think it's fascinating where they say it is wrong for us. Not, it's not a good idea. It's not the best use of our time. It is wrong for us to neglect the word and to prayer. We can be devoted to these things. And of course, the preaching, the teaching, prayer is more than just their own private praying. It's actually leading the services of prayer, leading corporate gatherings and worship, you know, to be devoted to these things. Because they remember, they remember what it was like to fail. They had failed publicly when Jesus came down from the mountain and the father brought his son to the disciples and they couldn't cast him out. They didn't have the power. And they said, why did we fail so spectacularly and publicly? And Jesus said, this kind can only come out by prayer. They knew what it was like that they were going into doing a supernatural work that were required these things. 
And if they weren't devoted to the word and prayer, then there wouldn't be any widows who needed to would be a part of them because they wouldn't even exist. So they gave that reason. And then notice in verse 5 how the proposal is accepted. This pleases everyone. Now, if you've ever been in a group that's larger than about three and they all come to agreement on anything, you know how this is a supernatural a miracle. So what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, you think context, whole gathering, how big is this? This is one of the logistics that I just wish there's so many little details. You wonder why? Give us a little more details. You know, how many people are there? You know, at this point, the best estimates, the church in Jerusalem is probably seven to 10,000 strong. And maybe that's one of the reasons they picked seven men, because they'd be over the, the, the group of thousands that they were broken up that way. So how many people were there? What kind of room are they fitting in? Is everybody there? Just they send representatives. But they have this unity, this supernatural gift of being in one accord. And then they, they designate a couple people. Stephen and Philip come to the forefront, and we're about to see Stephen go out. And then they gather them together. The apostles prayed and laid hands on them. You know, the laying on the hands is a symbolic, right, where you're transferring authority. You know, as we do that, we pray, we, we lay hands on people. It's a way of kind of transferring authority or saying a mutuality of we're sharing burdens. You know, another interesting thing about the laying on of hands is you often, it's a sacrificial rite. So you lay your hands on the animal that's about to get slaughtered. So we see they lay their hands on them to put them into a place of leadership. Most of you know, if there are anyone who's in more public forms of leadership, you know that it's, you're entering a place where you can be slaughtered. And then Stephen in the next chapter is about to be martyred. But they lay their hands on them and then notice the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to grow. The word, it's living, it's active, it's an actual force, it's a power, it's a, it's a character, and it continues to grow. And they grow as, as more people are accepting Christ as their Messiah and Savior, and they grow as people grow deeper and deeper in the knowledge of Him. And so the crisis is averted, and some vital lessons are learned. So reasons why this matters. Let's sum up with this. Why, why does this matter? Because I think this offers such tremendous lessons for leadership, for problem solving, for how healthy communities relate. And it gives you such a beautiful picture, I think, of the formation of what we, we could call the second branch of Christ's government, how he's going to uh, order his, his household, his, his kingdom on earth. You know, it's such an interesting line that Luke throws out there at the very end. Did you notice where he says, and many priests became obedient to the faith? See, so why does he throw that there? My hunch is that the reason why is because the ministry that we talked about last week, Jesus' ministry of healing, that has continued, that's his priestly ministry of bringing reconciliation between us and God and us and one another, and that ministry of healing that the priests are recognizing that the culmination and the fulfillment of who they are, what they've been called to do, why they exist, is now going to be embodied in this new ministry that the church calls the deacons. The deacons are the ones who now extend and formally have the responsibility to carry on those ministry of healing. 
But here you can kind of see that second branch of Christ's government. All right, first we have the teachers who are going to establish the teaching. Now we're going to have the deacons who are going to be responsible for establishing and tending and taking care of the, the weak and the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. But here what we see is a couple principles. In Christ's house, it's going to be run at the table with a plurality. There's a, there's a group who make the decisions and what we can call triperspectival leadership. So don't be alarmed by the big word. It's a big word, but it's very, it's kind of a simple concept. One of the key things that we see is a thing called triperspectival leadership. What is that? It's a way of looking at the world through multiple perspectives. And what it is, it's rooted. This comes from one of, who I think is one of the greatest living theologians, John Frame, who was one of my teachers at RTS and uh, writes about uh, this. But the idea is that God has always utilized three primary offices to organize his people. The office of the prophet, the priest, the king. And the prophet's role was to proclaim the truth of God to his people. The priest cared for the people by mediating reconciliation between God and people. And the king was to order and advance God's rule among his people so that they would be a signpost of God's reign to the world. And I think he's ordering his, his kingdom that way. Now, you may not really, you may think, all right, try perspective, oh, that's like a big fancy word. It really just means an intentional separation of powers. And, you know, one of the amazing things about the country that we live in is the founders knew this and intentionally established a form of government that was intentionally built on three different branches that had a separation of those powers and were very intended that it only works if they work together in unity and harmony. Now, in many ways, they took the concept and they had to add in things like checks and balances because that they knew that we were all sinners and left to ourselves, we will pursue our own selfish ambitions and try and squash the other ones and exalt ourselves. So there's checks and balances to keep us from that. And I believe that's the best form of government you can do here on this earth apart from the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is take that same form and then fills it where we now joyfully, humbly recognize and live that way. So why is this important? I think it can help you in so many ways. It can help you uh, alleviate some of your frustration. It can help foster humility in your own heart and appreciation for the needs and gifts of others. It can shed light in, in your own life about where you need to grow. It can create a communal context where you need uh, one another. So now I want you to think for a second, all right, well, of those three, because I think every single person has been made in Christ's image, and so God gives gifts to his church and his people, so every person in this room would primarily fall, and there's one of these that you're strong in, and there's probably a secondary one that you're probably you know, not bad in, and then there's one of these that you probably struggle with. So I want you to think for a second about you. Which one of those are you? Which am I? So one way you can tell, all right, in the opening illustration, was there a person you were instantly gravitating towards? Like, oh, yeah, they're, they're right. They're absolutely right. So that might be a good indication that you're strongly in one of those channels. I was trying to craft that in such a way where you could see Jeff as kind of the leader. I might call him the, the king. He might think he's the king. And then, of course, Terrence is the prophet, and then Sarah would be the priest. Is there a certain channel that you naturally flow? Or as you look at Acts chapter 6, this story, and we get done with the story, and I asked you, all right, in your opinion, what's the, what's the big win of the story? 
What's the win? And if you say, well, the big win is that it's, it's obvious. I mean, wait a minute, what is it? It's obvious. It's obvious that the big win is that the hungry widows are now being cared for. I mean, you have these widows who are, who are hungry, they're vulnerable, and now they're being cared for. If you, that's the big win in your mind, then you're, you're a priest. You're, you're one of the priests. Or you might say, well, isn't it obvious? The big win is that the apostles are now freed up to study and preach. I mean, that's the big win. They're no longer distracted with these secondary things. They can preach the word. Then you're probably a prophet or have those gifts. I'm actually embarrassed to say I preached on this passage eight years ago at our church in Alabama, and I was going back through the notes, and do you know what I titled the sermon? Of course you don't, but <laughs> if you do, that would be amazing. I titled the sermon Deadly Distractions and framed it that this problem that was being in front was a distraction that Satan was sending to keep them from their core responsibility of preaching and teaching. I'm embarrassed by that. But actually, what does that, where does that put me in? What category can you see? <laughs> so if you think that's a big win, you're, you're probably a prophet. Or if you think, oh, look, this is amazing. We actually now have structures where everybody knows their role and knows their responsibility and the mission of the church can go forward without these things. And you're probably in, in the, the king category. And when you go through situations and problems, you can almost think, all right, how can I check myself? What am I doing? Am I in scenarios of crisis and conflict? Am I kind of running through history or Bible verses or different things looking to see, all right, what is, what is true? Or am I thinking about how this information is affecting and being received by other people? Or I'm trying to figure out some way that this can all be worked out. You know, these three gifts, they're gifts of Christ, to his church and their gifts us. So Christ has given you those gifts and then the church needs you to exercise those gifts in those ways. And then we also need, it's a gift that we need one another. You know, the beauty is that no single person is given all three of those things because he wants us to stay relationally dependent. He wants us to stay needing one another. So God continues to work his mission out through his church. And it seems, I think, this leadership paradigm is not just incredibly valuable, but I think it's just profoundly and deeply true. And it's a way we can lead uh, people through and navigate the conflict. So now as we uh, transition to communion, you know, one of the beautiful things is that no one person in this room has all of those gifts, but there is one person who is all of those things. You know, Jesus, if we look, he was the great, he was the true and ultimate prophet who has perfectly revealed God to us. You know, he's the true and the ultimate priest who has offered himself as a final sacrifice to heal us and to restore us. And he's the true and the ultimate king who solidified his reign and rule by securing the coming kingdom with his death and his glorious resurrection, victorious. So we come to one who is all of those things and is all of those things for us and for our salvation. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood that's shed for you and the forgiveness of sins. So Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. 
We praise you for the tremendous gift of your son who is all of these things for us, that you have, you've spoken your words of life and that they are true and they reveal reality about who you are, who we are, and we can trust you. So we ask that you help us to know your word and love it. And we thank you that you come to us as the great high priest who shed his blood so a way can be made back into the presence of your father. And when we experience that, it is the power that can heal all of our fractured and broken relationships. And we praise you that you not only are our, our savior and our, our sacrifice, but you are also our king who is victorious over sin, death, and hell, and who is leading us and who is building a new kingdom and one day will bring the full restoration of all things. So we praise you for those things. We thank you for the gift of other people and wisdom and your spirit when we enter into times of conflict. So I pray that if there's anyone in here who's experiencing personal conflict, pray that you would help them, give them a sense of, of perspective, give them the wisdom to be able to try and see the problem from another perspective and how that might help them. Lord, we know that what causes quarrels among us is because of our own selfish desires. And those selfish desires can cause quarrels, quarrels between siblings around the breakfast table and then they can escalate all the way up to cause quarrels among nations. So we lay before you the national conflicts that we see. We pray for the believers in Romania who are enduring. Pray that you would give them strength. Pray for the believers in Ukraine who are enduring invasion. We pray that you would give them strength. We pray for the believers all around the different areas of conflict who are afraid and scared. We pray for the believers in Russia who are looking and watching and seeing things unravel that they might not agree with or want to be a part of. We pray for them. We pray for conflict on a national scale. We pray for, pray for a conflict on a personal scale. We pray for social, our social context. We ask that you help us not to be the kind of people who just look out in our world as critics and consumers, but help us to be aware of the things that we can take ownership of and responsibility for empowered by your grace, spreading your gospel. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever, and always. Amen. Go in peace.